great line, right? We will hold on to every promise he's ever made. Jesus, you are faithful. As we start this morning and and we continue in the book of, of Revelations, I wonder if it's possible that some of us hold on to promises that he never made. I wonder if it's possible that some of us hold on to promises that he never made. I see this happen in my own house, we leave for work in the morning, and uh, Rochelle or one of the boys will say, can we go on a date when you get home? And I'll say, we'll see, their favorite answer, or maybe. I get home from work, and someone is waiting at the door. I know because they have to move, or I'm going to run them over getting into a parking spot, um, and they're ready to go on a date. And what happens when I tell them we're not going on a date tonight? You promised. You said And they're crushed. They're defeated. They think, I don't like them. I'm not good. I'm not kind. I'm unfair. I don't keep my promises, right? I wonder, do we do that uh, with the Lord? Where uh, Maybe maybe this happened to you this week. Maybe you expected to get a deer. Happened to some of us. Here's a couple uh, examples from Scripture that I think might be common in our lives where we cling to a promise he never made. Psalms 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Is it possible that we read this scripture and instead of going, Wow, isn't it amazing how God's word is brilliantly illuminating for life, and instead go, See, God promised to light my path, so I will never take a wrong step, and he will never let me fall. It doesn't say that. It says his word is brilliantly illuminating for life, not that he will never let you take a wrong path, never, you'll never trip and fall. Here's another one, Jeremiah 29, 11, on coffee cups heard round the world. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Some of you know that Jeremiah is in Jerusalem writing a letter to exiled believers who are not happy to be exiled believers. They're not saying, thank you, Lord. They are not happy to be exiled believers resettling in and around Babylon. And Jeremiah says, the Lord is going to rescue you in 70 years. Hold tight. Your situation is temporary. He's coming. He has a plan for good and a hope and a future. And rather than saying, wow, isn't it amazing that God doesn't give up on his people? Isn't it amazing that he has mercy for these people who repeatedly fall into patterns of spiritual decay? What we sometimes hear, and the promise that he never said that we cling to, is, see, God's going to make everything work out to my liking, just the way I want it. I might have to wait a little bit, but God is going to make everything in my life work out perfectly. My kids... They're going to come around just right. They're going to love Jesus. They're going to marry a wonderful man or woman and have this fantastic career and take care of me in my old age. Whatever it is, God is going to work it out just to my liking. Is it possible that sometimes we cling to promises that he never said? And it's, it's a big deal because when I come home and my kids are expecting one thing and something else happens, again, they point the finger at me. I'm not fair. I'm not just. I'm not kind. I don't love them. I don't care for them. What happens when we cling to promises that the Lord never made is when they don't come true, we take our spiritual ball and pout and go home. It creates a strain in the relationship 
uh, creates distance in the relationship. And a concern, a pastoral concern, is that when we take our spiritual ball and go home, because life hasn't worked out as comfortably as we'd like, God hasn't fixed everything that's broken and made it just right, when we take our spiritual ball and go home, we never enter into the process that produces peace, hope, and joy in the Lord in our lives. And our lives become very fragile. They become inextricably linked to our circumstances such that life is kind of like uh, our experience of it is like being trapped on a roller coaster and never being able to get off because our experience in life, our emotions as as it relates to life, are inextricably linked to our circumstances, which, as you all know, will rise and, like a roller coaster, will fall. I think the Lord wants something better for us. I want to look at a church this morning that is praised for being spiritually on point. Jesus says to this church that is spiritually on point, I know what you are about to suffer. I know that you are suffering. I know that you will suffer even unto death. And so we are going to get a promise from the Lord that we can hold on to that is more meaningful, that is better than I will never let you take a wrong step. And I will make every situation work out just right. Your family will love you. Your estranged in-laws will send you great Christmas gifts. Your boss will finally fully appreciate everything that you do. Everything in life will resolve. Nice little red bow, maybe in time for Christmas. Uh, Let's look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is the letter to the church of Smyrna. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty. And in parentheses, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but instead are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and you may be tested And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Here's the promise. And I will give you the crown of life. He says, be faithful unto death. There's an exhortation there and a promise. And I will give you the crown of life. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's talk about uh, Smyrna for, for just a minute. Uh, Smyrna was well known in the ancient world for the imperial cult, which, that, which means that they worshipped, they served uh, the emperor of Rome uh, for good reason. Marcus Aurelius himself rebuilt the, the uh, town in, in 2 AD after it had been destroyed. They were so well known, they were so... Uh, respected by Rome because they were subservient to the emperor and worshipped the emperor that in 26 AD they were selected by Rome to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius in the 90s under the rule of the emperor Domitian um, they actually made it a capital offense to not offer the sacrifices to the emperor to not worship the emperor and a very famous Christian martyr at about 150 AD died because of that law for refusing to call Caesar Lord. So the Christians were hated 
by the people of Smyrna because they refused to do what everybody else did. They refused to worship the emperor, and that's not good if you're afraid that maybe uh, Roman soldiers will come in and then occupy or become more restrictive over your land. But the problem is, is the Christians were also hated by the Jews because the Jews were given permission to practice Judaism. The Christians were not given permission by Rome to practice Christianity, and the Jews did not want in the view of Rome, to be lumped in with the Christians and potentially lose their religious freedom. So the Christians were hated by the Romans, hated by the people of Smyrna, and hated by the Jews, and that's reflected in John's words here when he says, I know the slander of the Jews of the synagogue of Satan. They have rejected Jesus, and they hate Christ's followers. They don't want to lose their religious independence. Interestingly enough, uh, Smyrna is one of uh, two churches in these seven letters that are not uh, corrected. In other words, th- there's no fault listed. It doesn't mean they're a perfect church. It just means that as um, the Lord is, uh, directs Jesus, to, directs the angel about what to give to John, uh, no, no correction seems to be needed. And, and so maybe in our words, we might say Smyrna is on point. This is a solid, healthy, growing, vibrant uh, church. They know the word of God. They live it out. They care about Uh, the poor they know how to defend their faith and they share their faith and here's what jesus here's what jesus says to them verse 10 i know your tribulation don't fear what you're about to suffer translation it's going to get worse if you get a letter from john don't you what you want to hear is man it's been tough i know but the end is near it's been tough but it's going to get better that is not what this letter says it's been tough it's going to get worse. Congratulations, Smyrna. You've done a great job. It's been rough. It's going to get worse. It says you'll be thrown into prison. It doesn't say I'll make sure you get your three meals a day. Uh, I'll make sure you get an extra soft blanket. No. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Don't we think that a good God would never let his people suffer? Or that maybe even suffering is a mark of faithless, not faithful living. And so if, if uh, sweating is a mark of working hard, being tired at the end of the day is a mark of uh, having put in a good day, if getting a deer is a mark of being a good hunter, what we're seeing is... Jesus saying, being persecuted, suffering for following Jesus is a mark of faithful living. That is the expectation of God's people that following Jesus will lead to suffering in this life. It's not just for those who have spiritually gone astray, which is sometimes how we internalize when difficult things come our way. We just assume God's getting back at us. We just assume God's trying to correct us. And so um, think about some of the characters you're familiar with. Think about Joseph, right? Joseph was tagged at a young age to be a special agent of change and preservation for God's people as part of God's work. He shares the dreams God gives him with his brothers, and they bow down and worship him, right? No, what do they do? 
they're jealous. They hate him. They sell him to merchant traders. He ends up as a slave and forgotten about in an Egyptian jail. High five, Joseph. You think Joseph is sitting in the Egyptian jail going, this is exactly what I had in mind, God. When you said that, that I would rise to this level and everyone would bow down and worship me, this is kind of what I had in mind. No. How about King David? He's another who's who in the Old Testament, right? Man after God's own heart, surely things will work out all rosy for him. Do you know that he was on the run from Saul for years, for over a decade? Uh, he was the ant. Saul was the bully trying to step on, squash the ant. All David could do was run and hide. He could do nothing to fix his situation. Even remember when King Saul comes into the cave, David doesn't touch him. He had the opportunity to put all of his suffering to end, and he knew clearly from the Lord it was not his job to fix his circumstances, but rather trust the Lord in them. How about the apostles? We know that most of them, with the, the stories go, most of them lost their lives. Most of them were martyred. Most of them were killed for proclaiming, for teaching, for following Jesus. And like we want to do often as possible in this book of Revelation as we, as we walk through it, is come back to Jesus, right, and see his life as the archetype, as the example, as the model for us, right? Jesus, who served people who wanted him dead, right? Died for people who celebrated his death. Mentored an apostle who betrayed him and turned his back on him, right? Jesus' own family doubted him. Jesus' own people killed him, right? But what he did for us, the life he made possible for us, it did not come from a life of comfort and ease. The fact of the matter is what Jesus did for us was not accomplished through a comfortable life at all. And so we want to remember who we were before him, right? We want to remember that we rejected his plan. We rejected his ways. Like Adam and Eve, we all wanted or even now want to be gods. And by that, I mean we want to call the shots. We want to determine what is right and wrong. We want to answer to no one. We want to pursue and do whatever looks interesting, appealing, or attractive to us. And as a result of that defiance, of that rejection, right, we are uh, enslaved, uh, entrapped, addicted, right, to sin, to our own ways, to, uh, and so we live uh, filled with guilt. We live filled with shame. We live with these enormous burdens and try to treat the symptoms rather than the cause. We live uh, as inmates on death row, unaware of what's coming and just trying to enjoy our three meals a day. And so Jesus says, but Jesus came to, to seek and to save that was, which was lost, right? His, his perfect life is the uh, sufficient payment. His life was the execution that we deserve. His righteousness covers over our feeble attempts to be good enough. He says, our job is to repent. His job is to save. You start with Genesis and work your way all through the Bible. You will see that all God's people do is repent. Not much more than that. His job is to save. He saves. We just wave the white, white flag of surrender and say, it's not working. I can't do it. Will you?
And what he does is restores us to God, right? What he does is give us victory over the enemy and over sin in this life and eternity with him, free from that weight and sin forever. And, and so that's kind of called the gospel on the ground, that Jesus saves sinner. The broader, larger picture, the, the gospel in the air, if you will, is that he's actively working through his people, through the church, to push back darkness, to bring order from chaos and to restore and to make whole what is broken. It's kind of considered the gospel in the air, the larger work of Jesus, of which saving sinners is a part of. And so a question we might ask is, if he's actively pushing back darkness, actively doing good things, and we're a part of that, why is persecution normative for God's people? Why is persecution something that Jesus says, expect, get ready for it, it will happen? A couple, a couple reasons. Why would a church like Smyrna suffer? Why would they be persecuted? John fifteen eighteen says, "If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you." What's one of the reasons the church at Smyrna suffered? What's one of the reasons Jesus says the expectation is for God's people that we will suffer? Is we stand aligned with Him, which means we stand opposed to evil. Right? We stand aligned with him, which means that we stand opposed to evil. He tells the world, the world, this is, this is evil. He calls sin, sin. He says this is wrong, and there are consequences. If you tell a three-year-old he or she cannot eat all of their Halloween candy on Halloween night, what will happen? They will throw a fit. They won't say, oh, that's a great idea, Dad. I'm going to save this one piece a day for the next two months. Oh, it's way better than eating it all right now. No, they're going to throw a fit, right? If you tell the world that killing babies is wrong, if you tell the world that marriage is supposed to be a commitment that lasts forever, if you tell a, w- a world that there's consequences for breaking God's order, breaking God's law, defying his rule, if you tell a world that you stand aligned with him but opposed to evil and you should expect pushback, the people in Smyrna refused to worship the emperor, refused to offer the sacrifices that everybody else around them did, and it caused them to be socially ostracized Economically, it was devastating. They lost businesses. They became less employable. It impacted, it changed for the worse, every aspect of their life. Stood aligned with God to stand opposed to evil, and evil doesn't like that. One of the reasons that we should expect suffering is because we're opposed to evil, and evil is the way of the world. Uh, Second reason we should expect it is Satan's power is real. real. Second Corinthians 4, 4 uh, talks about the God of this age having blinded the world, right? Having blinded the world. We talked last week about blind spots. And, and so one of the, the unfortunate things about blind spots is if you're driving and you're merging to your right and you don't see the car to your right, you won't see it until you hear the sound of two pieces of metal colliding. And that's not a sound that we like, but it's too late, right? It's too late. 2 Corinthians 4 4 says that the God of this age, Satan, has real power and he has blinded the hearts of men and women so that we pursue things and we do things. We merge not seeing the object in our blind spot until it's too late. So we we work and we work and we work and ignore a husband or a wife and ignore kids break apart a family all the while thinking we're doing something noble, right? Uh, We're blind. 
Uh, we pursue what's attractive to us, thinking that I need this accomplishment or I, I need to be able to own or to buy or to do this, and that will make us happy, right? We're blind. Our efforts don't work, and so we drug ourselves. We find uh, through saying, not saying no to any of our impulses, we, we find ways to cope to treat the symptoms rather than the problem, and then we're confused when the problem persists, right? We're blind. The world is blind. So what do we do? James 1, 2 through 4 is a great spot to start, right? Jesus says, do not fear, remain faithful unto death. How do we do that? James 1, 2 through 4 tells us first, when difficulty, when trial, when persecution comes your way, when you're made fun of at work, when you lose a job promotion because you're known as the weirdo Christian, um, first of all, rejoice. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Rejoice so that you may become perfect and complete. Uh, in First Peter 1.7, the outcome of this testing is going to be described as something more precious than gold. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when we complain, obsessively complain about difficulty or persecution, when we run from it, when we hide from it, when we do everything in our power to not cling to Jesus, but rather fix our circumstances, we are actively running away from what Jesus is trying to use in our life to produce something described as more precious than gold. It's like being on the operating table and trying to jump off as soon as you see the physician coming. The physician is there to help. It's a bit scary, but the physician is there to help. You get up off the operating table, you're going to get worse, not get better. Think just for a second about what that, that better looks like. You have been through very difficult seasons in life and with the Lord. Don't those difficult circumstances produce in you an unwavering confidence that God has power over the things and the people that seem to, by, from our perception, that seem to have power over us? And isn't that unwavering confidence an amazing thing as it grows into maturity where the difficulties of life, uh, the ebb and flow of things, they start to not knock us off our equilibrium as often or as hard, right? Because we've learned to trust in the sovereignty and the rule and the goodness and the power of our God, power over the things and the people that seem to have power over us. Another part of that maturity of that thing that is more precious than gold is our focus gets refined, right? Some of us 
live life like a, a laptop computer with a thousand windows open, right? Everything gets slowed down. Everything gets bogged up. Every task or function you try to do gives you the spinning wheel of death. Can't handle it, right? Too many things are going on. One of the things that happens when we go through difficulty is our focus is refined on our mission and on our purpose. The, the peripheral things, the less important things, get stripped away and what is central, what is essential, what is more important becomes the primary object uh, of our focus. The first thing is rejoice. Uh, second, from Philippians 3, and 11, Paul talks about following Jesus, the, the decision to go this way in life, to follow Jesus' lead, follow Jesus' rule, yield his whole life, is a simultaneous decision to say no to everything that he was doing before. The decision to say no to his past pursuits, uh, the career that he had uh, crafted for himself the prestigious position that he was in and was was climbing to a everything that he was pursuing goes out the window as he fully yields himself and, and follows Jesus and, and Paul doesn't reflect back on this and say man that was a bummer what could my life have been like no uh, verses 10 and 11 from Philippians 3 that I may know him talks about all of his sufferings that I might know him power of his resurrection, my share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul says it is a privilege to suffer like Jesus suffered. It is a privilege to suffer on this pathway, that it is the path to life. And so Paul instructs us, look forward in your persecution, in your suffering, in your difficulty. Look forward. It's worth it. The end is worth it, even if for a time we suffer. Uh, rejoice. Look forward. Third, keep going. Matthew ten nineteen uh, is a cool verse where the disciples are brought in, beaten, dragged in, beaten, told don't do this again, and they're emboldened, right? What the leaders thought would crush their spirits emboldened them, and they keep going, grateful for the opportunity to be counted worthy to suffer. When you suffer, when you go through extraordinary difficulty, emboldened, keep going. God's at work. You're on the operating table. God is at work. It's kind of like uh, the, ba the basketball team that uh, my son was on that I coached, a bunch of third graders and fourth graders. They never wanted to do anything that was hard. We had to run. We, we never even did any of the hard running. We just did laps. We could barely keep them uh, doing laps. They, they wanted to flick each other's ears most of the time. Um, they never wanted to do anything that was hard. Drills, running, all of the things that actually make you better, they didn't want to do. What they wanted to do was shoot as many shots as they possibly could and, and scrimmage, which leads to a really terrible performance on Saturday uh, on game day. But from their vantage point, the stuff that was good was the hard stuff. But the stuff that they wanted to do was the easy stuff, the stuff they needed to do, they didn't want to do. It was hard. They sweat. They had to work hard, get their little faces flushed red, and then sit down and water break every three or four minutes, right? 
you're in difficulty, if you're facing persecution, you're on the operating table, you're in a holy place, be emboldened, keep going, rejoice, look forward, keep going. Uh, and fourth, and we could do 15, but we're just going to do four. Um, trust him for the right response. Gave you the wrong quote. Uh, Acts 5 was keep going. Matthew 10, 19 uh, is where Jesus tells him, hey, you're going to be dragged in before uh, rulers, before leaders. Um, it's not going to go well for you. Trust me for what to say when that time comes. Trust me for what to say when that time comes. In other words, as you go down this road, faithfully following Jesus, as you put him first in your business, as you put him first at work, as you put him first in your family, expect that people around you won't agree or like what you're doing. Expect that. Rejoice. Look forward. Be emboldened. Keep going. Trust him for the right response. I don't know how you are, but sometimes I will lay in bed at night trying to think of the perfect response if by the unlikely chance a certain conversation happens. And it'll, I'll spend hours thinking about it. And we trust the Lord that as we walk his path, he's actually with us and will actually lead us. It won't be a matter of you having just the perfect thing that you wrote down on a piece of paper tucked into your pocket. And when you get that question or when that comment is made, you pull out your piece of paper and you said, I was ready for this, I'm prepared, and you read your great one-liner. It won't be about your great one-liner. It will be about you trusting Jesus, following Jesus, and he will give you what you need to say in the moment that you need to say it. Matthew 10, 19. Jesus reminds the church that he is a sympathetic high priest. Uh, let's read verse 1 again, uh, verse 8 again. Uh, listen how Jesus makes the introduction of this letter to Smyrna, and then listen how he closes it as we think about a promise of God that we can hold on to, that we can cling to. He says at the start, verse 8, the words are the first and the last, describing who he is as the author. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am the one who died and came to life. I love that the beginning of every single one of these letters includes an aspect of Jesus that is, one, relatable to his audience, and two, essential for them moving forward. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am the one who was dead and came to life, as Jesus is at the same time telling them to suffer unto death so that they can receive the crown of life. Jesus says, my life is the example. Watch me. I was dead and now I am alive. Closes the letter, verse 11. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So let's real quickly examine what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying to the church of Smyrna, Remain faithful, and they will let you out of prison. He is not saying, remain faithful, and you'll get your business back. Remain faithful, and your boss will hire you and call you back to work, and everything will be just fine. Remain faithful, and you'll get your house back. Remain faithful, and you'll get your health back. He's not saying any of those things. He's saying, remain faithful. I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who keeps going, will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, the people of Smyrna can take these things from you, and they will. It is much better to be spared the wrath of God 
Jesus is saying it is much better to be spared the wrath of God than to be spared pain and difficulty in this life. It is much better to be spared the wrath of God for eternity. And we're going to get into the wrath of God. Revelation is thick with it. It is better for us to be spared the wrath of God than to be spared pain and suffering in this life. It is better for my boys' basketball team to be spared the embarrassment of a poor loss on Saturday by having to work hard than to be spared of working hard and suffering the embarrassment of a terrible loss on Saturday. It is better to be spared the wrath of God than to be spared pain and difficulty in this life. What Jesus has made possible for us in the midst of difficulty and suffering is kind of like the text in Matthew uh, 7 or Matthew 10 where Jesus describes a man who builds his house on a rock, right? And the storms come and the wind blows and the rain comes and the house is secure because it's built on the rock. Don't you want to to live that way and have that uh, assurance and have that peace in your heart even as the winds and the storms blow, right? Because following Jesus, right, doesn't promise to remove the storms from our lives, promises to be with us in the storms. Don't you want to have that house built on the rock experience. Where does that come from? It comes from clinging to Jesus in difficulty, rejoicing, going forward, being emboldened, trusting him, looking forward when we're so inclined to look around and look at other people and despair, be frustrated, assuming it's our job to fix what's broken, assuming God's not involved when he is, assuming he's not present when he is, assuming he doesn't have his hands all over our life when in fact he does. The outcome is a sort of spiritually bulletproof life. Uh, Tyrone picked a song to end with this morning. Uh, many of you have sung it. Um, it's about 150 years old. Um, the song title is It Is Well With My Soul. Some of you know uh, where the lyrics came from. A uh, man, like I said, about 150 years ago, eighteen seventy three, a guy named Horatio Spafford had his family, his four daughters and his wife, uh, leave Chicago. They headed uh, over the Atlantic to Europe and on their way uh, their ship struck another ship and like two hundred and twelve of the three hundred or so passengers died. Uh, his wife was uh, grabbed hold of some debris and she was spotted by a rescue uh, effort and she uh, was brought aboard uh, the other ship and when she got to Wales uh, she wired back uh, very short uh, says saved alone what shall I do that was her message that's what uh, he he received back in Chicago so he gets on a boat and he heads over and the captain calls him into his office when they're over the spot where um, the ship went down where his daughters drowned and so there uh, in that spot, as, as the story goes, is where he, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now these are not words from a Christian coffee cup that you see at a at a Christian store, right? These are deep words 
from a man who has learned to cling to Jesus, right? Learn to, to look forward in the midst of great difficulty, learn to trust him uh, no matter what is happening around us. This is what it looks like to have your life built on the rock rather than being crushed by the weight of despair, able to know and believe and emotionally in your heart be able to say it is well it is well with my soul so we're going to sing this song uh, as we close this morning's service uh, sing those uh, truths over uh, your own life confess maybe the areas of your life that, that you need to let go of and surrender to his rule to entrust to him confess our desire even to avoid pain and difficulty and put our trust in the Jesus who holds the key to power over today and tomorrow, who has at his disposal the crown of life to spare us from the wrath of God. Praise him that he would choose to spare us from the wrath of God rather than simply sparing us from pain and difficulty in this life. Join me in prayer. Lord, we do confess together that so often we would prefer a comfortable life over a holy life, a comfortable life over a God-glorifying, mission-filled life. And so, Lord, we, we need you to do a work uh, in our hearts to get a vision, get a picture of, of what could be, of what that unwavering confidence might mean in our, in our own lives, to have our house, our spiritual houses, Lord, built on the rock, unwavering, unflappable, spiritually bulletproof. Lord, we confess that we read into so much of your word what we want to hear, things that will benefit us and make us happy and work out to our liking right now. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have chosen to spare us from the wrath of God. May we repent. Lord, we trust you to save. In Jesus' name we pray.